Part 3, How to Win People to Your Way of Thinking. Chapter 1, You Can't Win an Argument. Shortly after the close of World War I, I learned an invaluable lesson one night in London. I was manager at the time for Sir Ross Smith. During the war, Sir Ross had been the Australian ace out in Palestine, and shortly after peace was declared, he astonished the world by flying halfway round it in 30 days. No such feat had ever been attempted before. It created a tremendous sensation. The Australian government awarded him $50,000. The King of England knighted him, and for a while, he was the most talked about man under the Union Jack. I was attending a banquet one night given in Sir Ross's honor, and during the dinner, the man sitting next to me told a humorous story which hinged on the quotation, there's a divinity that shapes our ends, rough hew them how we will. And the raconteur mentioned that the quotation was from the Bible. He was wrong, I knew that. I knew it positively. There couldn't be the slightest doubt about it. And so, to get a feeling of importance and display my superiority, I appointed myself an unsolicited and unwelcome committee of one to correct him. He stuck to his guns. What? From Shakespeare? Impossible. Absurd. That quotation was from the Bible, and he knew it. And the storyteller was sitting on my right, and Frank Gammond, an old friend of mine, was seated at my left. Mr. Gammond had devoted years to the study of Shakespeare, so the storyteller and I agreed to submit the question to Mr. Gammond. Mr. Gammond listened. He kicked me under the table and then said, Dale, you're wrong. The gentleman is right. It is from the Bible. On our way home that night, I said to Mr. Gammond, Frank, you know that quotation was from Shakespeare. Yes, of course, he replied. Hamlet, Act 5, Scene 2. But we were guests at a festive occasion, my dear Dale. Why prove to a man that he is wrong? Is that going to make him like you? Why not let him save his face? He didn't ask for your opinion. He didn't want it. Why argue with him? Always avoid the acute angle. The man who said that taught me a lesson I'll never forget. I'd not only made the storyteller uncomfortable, but it put my friend in an embarrassing situation. How much better it would have been had I not become argumentative. It was a sorely needed lesson because I'd been an inveterate arguer. During my youth, I'd argued with my brother about everything under the Milky Way. When I went to college, I studied logic and argumentation and went in for debating contests. Talk about being from Missouri. I was born there. I had to be shown. Later, I taught debating and argumentation in New York. And once, I'm ashamed to admit, I planned to write a book on the subject. Since then, I have listened to, engaged in, and watched the effects of thousands of arguments. As a result of all this, I've come to the conclusion that there's only one way under a high heaven to get the best of an argument, and that is to avoid it. Avoid it as you would avoid rattlesnakes and earthquakes. Nine times out of ten, an argument ends with each of the contestants more firmly convinced than ever that he is absolutely right. You can't win an argument. You can't because if you lose it, you lose it, and if you win it, you lose it. Why? Well, suppose you triumph over the other man and shoot his argument full of holes and prove that he is non-compos mentis. And then what? You will feel fine, but what about him? You've made him feel inferior. You've hurt his pride. He will resent your triumph. And a man convinced against his will 
is of the same opinion still. Years ago, Patrick J. O'Hare joined one of my classes. He had had little education, and how he loved a scrap. He had once been a chauffeur, and he came to me because he had been trying, without much success, to sell trucks. A little questioning brought out the fact that he was continually scrapping with and antagonizing the very people he was trying to do business with. If a prospect said anything derogatory about the trucks he was selling, Pat saw red and was right at the customer's throat. Pat won a lot of arguments in those days. As he said to me afterward, I often walked out of an office saying, I told that bird something. Sure, I told him something, but I hadn't sold him anything. My first problem was not to teach Patrick J. O'Hare to talk. My immediate task was to train him to refrain from talking and to avoid verbal fights. Mr. O'Hare became one of the star salesmen for the White Motor Company in New York. How did he do it? Now here's his story in his own words. If I walk into a buyer's office now and he says, What? A white truck? They're no good. I wouldn't take one if he gave it to me. I'm going to buy the Hoosett truck. I say, the Hoosett's a good truck. If you buy the Hoosett, you'll never make a mistake. The Hoosett's are made by a fine company and sold by good people. He's speechless then. There's no room for argument. If he says, the Hoosett's the best, and I say, sure it is, he has to stop. He can't keep on all afternoon saying, it's the best, when I'm agreeing with him. We then get off the subject of the Hoosett, and I begin to talk about the good points of the white truck. There was a time when a remark like his first one would have made me see scarlet and red and orange. I'd start arguing against the who's it, and the more I argued against it, the more my prospect argued in favor of it. The more he argued, the more he sold himself on my competitor's product. As I look back now, I wonder how I was ever able to sell anything. I lost years of my life in scrapping and arguing. I keep my mouth shut now. It pays. As wise old Ben Franklin used to say, if you argue and rankle and contradict, you may achieve a victory sometimes, but it will be an empty victory because you will never get your opponent's goodwill. So figure it out for yourself. Which would you rather have, an academic, theatrical victory or a person's goodwill? You can seldom have both. The Boston Transcript once printed this bit of significant doggerel. Here lies the body of William J., who died maintaining his right of way. He was right, dead right, as he sped along, but he's just as dead as if he were wrong. You may be right, dead right, as you speed along in your argument, but as far as changing another's mind is concerned, you will probably be just as futile as if you were wrong. Frederick S. Parsons, an income tax consultant, had been disputing and wrangling for an hour with a government tax inspector. An item of $9,000 was at stake. Mr. Parsons claimed that this $9,000 was in reality a bad debt, that it would never be collected, that it ought not to be taxed. Bad debt, my eye, retorted the inspector. It must be taxed. This inspector was cold, arrogant, and stubborn, Mr. Parsons said as he told the story of the class. Reason was wasted, and so are facts. The longer we argued, the more stubborn he became. So I decided to avoid argument, change the subject, and give him appreciation. I said, I suppose this is a very petty matter in comparison with the really important and difficult decisions you're required to make. I've made a study of taxation myself, but I've had to get my knowledge from books. 
You're getting yours from the firing line of experience. I sometimes wish I had a job like yours. It would teach me a lot. And I meant every word I said. Well, the inspector straightened up in his chair, leaned back and talked for a long time about his work, telling me of the clever frauds he had uncovered. His tone gradually became friendly, and presently he was telling me about his children. As he left, he advised me that he would consider my problem further and give me his decision in a few days. He called at my office three days later and informed me that he had decided to leave the tax return exactly as it was filed. Now, this tax inspector was demonstrating one of the most common of human frailties. He wanted a feeling of importance. And as long as Mr. Parsons argued with him, he got his feeling of importance by loudly asserting his authority. But as soon as his importance was admitted, and the argument stopped, and he was permitted to expand his ego, he became a sympathetic and kindly human being. Buddha said, hatred is never ended by hatred, but by love. And a misunderstanding is never ended by an argument, but by tact, diplomacy, conciliation, and a sympathetic desire to see the other person's viewpoint. Lincoln once reprimanded a young army officer for indulging in a violent controversy with an associate. No man who is resolved to make the most of himself, said Lincoln, can spare time for personal contention. Still less can he afford to take the consequences, including the vitiation of his temper and the loss of self-control. Yield larger things to which you show no more than equal rights, and yield lesser ones, though clearly your own. Better give our path to a dog than be bitten by him in contesting for the right. Even killing the dog would not cure the bite. In an article in Bits and Pieces, some suggestions are made on how to keep a disagreement from becoming an argument. Welcome the disagreement. Remember the slogan, when two partners always agree, one of them is not necessary. If there is some point you haven't thought about, be thankful if it is brought to your attention. Perhaps this disagreement is your opportunity to be corrected before you make a serious mistake. Distrust your first instinctive impression. Our first natural reaction in a disagreeable situation is to be defensive. Be careful. Keep calm and watch out for your first reaction. It may be you at your worst, not your best. Control your temper. Remember, you can measure the size of a person by what makes him or her angry. Listen first. Give your opponents a chance to talk. Let them finish. Do not resist, defend, or debate. This only raises barriers. Try to build bridges of understanding. Don't build higher barriers of misunderstanding. Look for areas of agreement. When you have heard your opponents out, dwell first on the points and areas on which you agree. Be honest. Look for areas where you can admit error and say so. Apologize for your mistakes. It will help disarm your opponents and reduce defensiveness. Promise to think over your opponents' ideas and study them carefully and mean it. Your opponents may be right. It is a lot easier at this stage to agree to think about their points than to move rapidly ahead and find yourself in a position where your opponents can say, we tried to tell you, but you wouldn't listen. Thank your opponents sincerely for their interest. Anyone who takes the time to disagree with you is interested in the same things you are. 
think of them as people who really want to help you, and you may turn your opponents into friends. Postpone action to give both sides time to think through the problem. Suggest that a new meeting be held later that day or the next day when all the facts may be brought to bear. In preparation for this meeting, ask yourself some hard questions. Could my opponents be right? Partly right? Is there truth or merit in their position or argument? Is my reaction one that will relieve the problem, or will it just relieve any frustration? Will my reaction drive my opponents further away or draw them closer to me? Will my reaction elevate the estimation good people have of me? Will I win or lose? What price will I have to pay if I win? If I am quiet about it, will the disagreement blow over? Is this difficult situation an opportunity for me? Opera tenor Jan Pierce, after he was married nearly 50 years, once said, My wife and I made a pact a long time ago, and we've kept it no matter how angry we've grown with each other. When one yells, the other should listen, because when two people yell, there is no communication, just noise and bad vibrations. Principle 1. The only way to get the best of an argument is to avoid it. Chapter 2. A Sure Way of Making Enemies and How to Avoid It When Theodore Roosevelt was in the White House, he confessed that if he could be right 75% of the time, he would reach the highest measure of his expectation. If that was the highest rating that one of the most distinguished men of the 20th century could hope to obtain, what about you and me? If you can be sure of being right only 55% of the time, you can go down to Wall Street and make a million dollars a day. If you can't be sure of being right even 55% of the time, why should you tell other people they are wrong? You can tell people they are wrong by a look or an intonation or a gesture, just as eloquently as you can in words. And if you tell them they are wrong, do you make them want to agree with you? Never for you've struck a direct blow at their intelligence, judgment, pride, and self-respect. That will make them want to strike back, but it will never make them want to change their minds. You may hurl at them all the logic of a Plato or an Immanuel Kant, but you will not alter their opinions, for you have hurt their feelings. Never begin by announcing, I am going to prove so-and-so to you. Now, that's bad. That's tantamount to saying, I'm smarter than you are. I'm going to tell you a thing or two and make you change your mind. That is a challenge. It arouses opposition and makes the listener want to battle with you before you even start. It is difficult, under even the most benign conditions, to change people's minds. So why make it harder? Why handicap yourself? If you're going to prove anything, don't let anybody know it. Do it so subtly, so adroitly, that no one will feel that you are doing it. This was expressed succinctly by Alexander Pope. Men must be taught as if you taught them not, and things unknown proposed as things forgot. Over 300 years ago, Galileo said, You cannot teach a man anything. You can only help him to find it within himself. As Lord Chesterfield said to his son, Be wiser than other people if you can, but do not tell them so. And Socrates said repeatedly to his followers in Athens, One thing only I know, and that is that I know nothing. 
Well, I can't hope to be any smarter than Socrates, so I have quit telling people they are wrong, and I find that it pays. If a person makes a statement that you think is wrong, yes, even that you know is wrong, isn't it better to begin by saying, well, now, look, I thought otherwise, but I may be wrong. I frequently am. And if I am wrong, I want to be put right. Let's examine the facts. There's magic, positive magic in such phrases as, I may be wrong, I frequently am, let's examine the facts. Nobody in the heavens above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters under the earth will ever object to your saying, I may be wrong, let's examine the facts. One of our class members who used this approach in dealing with customers was Harold Ranke, a Dodge dealer in Billings, Montana. He reported that because of the pressures of the automobile business, he was often hard-boiled and callous when dealing with customers' complaints. This caused flared tempers, loss of business, and general unpleasantness. He told his class, Recognizing that this was getting me nowhere fast, I tried a new tack. I'd say something like this. Our dealership has made so many mistakes that I'm frequently ashamed. We may have erred in your case, so tell me about it. Now, this approach becomes quite disarming, and by the time the customer releases his feelings, he's usually much more reasonable when it comes to settling the matter. In fact, several customers have thanked me for having such an understanding attitude, and two of them have even brought in friends to buy new cars. In this highly competitive market, we need more of this type of customer, and I believe that showing respect for all customers' opinions and treating them diplomatically and courteously will help beat the competition. You will never get into trouble by admitting that you may be wrong. That will stop all argument and inspire your opponent to be just as fair and open and broad-minded as you are. It will make him want to admit that he, too, may be wrong. If you know positively that a person is wrong and you bluntly tell him or her so, what happens? Let me illustrate. Mr. S., a young New York attorney, once argued a rather important case before the United States Supreme Court. Lunchgarden versus Fleet Corporation, 280 U.S. 320. The case involved a considerable sum of money and an important question of law. During the argument, one of the Supreme Court justices said to him, The statute of limitations in admiralty law is six years, is it not? Mr. S. stopped, stared at the justice for a moment, and then he said bluntly, Your Honor, there is no statute of limitations in admiralty. A hush fell on the court, said Mr. S., as he related his experience to one of my classes, and the temperature in the room seemed to drop to zero. I was right, the justice was wrong, and I had told him so. But did that make him friendly? No. I still believe that I had the law on my side, and I know that I spoke better than I ever spoke before, but I didn't persuade. I made the enormous blunder of telling a very learned and famous man that he was wrong. A few people are logical, most of us are prejudiced and biased, most of us are blighted with preconceived notions, with jealousy, suspicion, fear, envy, and pride. And most citizens don't want to change their minds about their religion or their haircut or communism or their favorite movie star. So if you're inclined to tell people they're wrong, please review the following paragraph every morning before breakfast. It's from James Harvey Robinson's enlightening book, the mind in the making. We sometimes find ourselves changing our minds without any resistance 
or heavy emotion. But if we are told we are wrong, we resent the imputation and harden our hearts. We are incredibly heedless in the formation of our beliefs, but find ourselves filled with an illicit passion for them when anyone proposes to rob us of their companionship. It is obviously not the ideas themselves that are dear to us, but our self-esteem which is threatened. The little word, my, is the most important one in human affairs, and properly to reckon with, it is the beginning of wisdom. It has the same force whether it is my dinner, my dog, and my house, or my father, my country, and my God. We not only resent the imputation that our watch is wrong, or our car shabby, but that our conception of the canals of Mars, of the pronunciation of Epictetus, of the medicinal value of Salicin, or of the date of Sargon I, is subject to revision. We like to continue to believe what we have been accustomed to accept as true, and the resentment aroused when doubt is cast upon any of our assumptions leads us to seek every manner of excuse for clinging to it. The result is that most of our so-called reasoning consists in finding arguments for going on believing as we already do. Carl Rogers, the eminent psychologist, wrote in his book On Becoming a Person. I have found it of enormous value when I can permit myself to understand the other person. The way in which I have worded this statement may seem strange to you. Is it necessary to permit oneself to understand another? I think it is. Our first reaction to most of the statements which we hear from other people is an evaluation or judgment rather than an understanding of it. When someone expresses some feeling, attitude, or belief, our tendency is almost immediately to feel, that's right, or that's stupid, that's abnormal, that's unreasonable, that's incorrect, that's not nice. Very rarely do we permit ourselves to understand precisely what the meaning of the statement is to the other person. I once employed an interior decorator to make some draperies for my home. And when the bill arrived, I was dismayed. A few days later, a friend dropped in and looked at the draperies. The price was mentioned, and she exclaimed with a note of triumph, What? That's awful. I'm afraid he put one over on you. A true? <laughs> yes, she told the truth. But few people like to listen to truths that reflect on their judgment. So, being human, I tried to defend myself. I pointed out that the best is eventually the cheapest, that one can't expect to get quality and artistic taste at bargain basement prices, and so on. The next day, another friend dropped in, admired the draperies, bubbled over with enthusiasm, and expressed a wish that she could afford such exquisite creations for her home. My reaction was totally different. Well, to tell you the truth, I said, I can't afford them myself. I paid too much. I'm sorry I ordered them. When we're wrong, we may admit it to ourselves, and if we're handled gently and tactfully, we may admit it to others, and even take pride in our frankness and broad-mindedness. But not if someone else is trying to ram the unpalatable fact down our esophagus. Horace Greeley, the most famous editor in America during the time of the Civil War, disagreed violently with Lincoln's policies. He believed that he could drive Lincoln into agreeing with him by a campaign of argument, ridicule, and abuse. 
He waged this bitter campaign month after month, year after year. In fact, he wrote a brutal, bitter, sarcastic, and personal attack on President Lincoln the night Booth shot him. But did all this bitterness make Lincoln agree with Greeley? Not at all. Ridicule and abuse never do. If you want some excellent suggestions about dealing with people and managing yourself and improving your personality, read Benjamin Franklin's autobiography, one of the most fascinating life stories ever written, one of the classics of American literature. Ben Franklin tells how he conquered the iniquitous habit of argument and transformed himself into one of the most able, suave, and diplomatic men in American history. One day, when Ben Franklin was a blundering youth, an old Quaker friend took him aside and lashed him with a few stinging truths, something like this. Ben, you are impossible. Your opinions have a slap in them for everyone who differs with you. They have become so offensive that nobody cares for them. Your friends find they enjoy themselves better when you are not around. You know so much that no man can tell you anything. Indeed, no man is going to try, for the effort would lead only to discomfort and hard work. So you are not likely ever to know any more than you do now, which is very little." One of the finest things I know about Ben Franklin is the way he accepted that smarting rebuke. He was big enough and wise enough to realize that it was true, to sense that he was headed for failure and social disaster. So he made a right-about face. He began immediately to change his insolent, opinionated ways. I made it a rule, said Franklin, to forbear all direct contradiction to the sentiment of others, and all positive assertion of my own. I even forbade myself the use of every word or expression in the language that imported a fixed opinion, such as certainly, undoubtedly, etc., and I adopted instead of them, I conceive, I apprehend, or I imagine a thing to be so, or so, or it so appears to me at present. When another asserted something that I thought an error, I denied myself the pleasure of contradicting him abruptly and of showing immediately some absurdity in his proposition. And in answering, I began by observing that in certain cases of circumstances, his opinion would be right. But in the present case, there appeared or seemed to me some difference, etc. I soon found the advantage of this change in my manner. The conversations I engaged in went on more pleasantly. The modest way in which I proposed my opinions procured them a readier reception and less contradiction. I had less mortification when I was found to be in the wrong, and I more easily prevailed with others to give up their mistakes and join with me when I happened to be in the right. And this mode, which I at first put on with some violence to natural inclination, became at length so easy and so habitual to me that perhaps for these fifty years no one has ever heard a dogmatical expression escape me. And to this habit, after my character of integrity, I think it principally owing that I had earned so much weight with my fellow citizens when I proposed new institutions or alterations in the old, and so much influence in public councils when I became a member. For I was but a bad speaker, never eloquent, 
subject to much hesitation in my choice of words, hardly correct in language, and yet I generally carried my points. How do Ben Franklin's methods work in business? Let's take two examples. Catherine A. Allred of Kings Mountain, North Carolina, is an industrial engineering supervisor for a yarn processing plant. She told one of our classes how she handled a sensitive problem before and after taking our training. Part of my responsibility, she reported, deals with setting up and maintaining incentive systems and standards for our operators so they can make more money by producing more yarn. The system we were using had worked fine when we had only two or three different types of yarn, but recently we had expanded our inventory and capabilities to enable us to run more than 12 different varieties. The present system was no longer adequate to pay the operators fairly for the work being performed and give them an incentive to increase production. I had worked up a new system which would enable us to pay the operator by the class of yarn she was running at any one particular time. With my new system in hand, I entered the meeting, determined to prove to the management that my system was the right approach. I told them in detail how they were wrong and showed where they were being unfair and how I had all the answers they needed. And to say the least, I failed miserably. I had become so busy defending my position on the new system that I had left them no opening to graciously admit their problems on the old one. The issue was dead. After several sessions of this course, I realized all too well where I had made my mistakes. I called another meeting, and this time I asked where they felt their problems were. We discussed each point, and I asked them their opinion on which was the best way to proceed. With a few low-keyed suggestions at proper intervals, I let them develop my system by themselves. At the end of the meeting, when I actually presented my system, they enthusiastically accepted it. I'm convinced now that nothing good is accomplished and a lot of damage can be done if you tell a person straight out that he or she is wrong. You only succeed in stripping that person of self-dignity and making yourself an unwelcome part of any discussion. Let's take another example. And remember, these cases I'm citing are typical of the experiences of thousands of other people. R.V. Crowley was a salesman for a lumber company in New York. Crowley admitted that he had been telling hard-boiled lumber inspectors for years that they were wrong. And he'd won the arguments, too, but it hadn't done any good. For these lumber inspectors, said Mr. Crowley, are like baseball umpires. Once they make a decision, they never change it. Mr. Crowley saw that his firm was losing thousands of dollars through the arguments he won. So while taking my course, he resolved to change tactics and abandon arguments. And with what results? Now here's the story as he told it to fellow members of his class. One morning, the phone rang in my office. A hot and bothered person at the other end proceeded to inform me that a car of lumber we had shipped into his plant was entirely unsatisfactory. His firm had stopped unloading and requested that we make immediate arrangements to remove the stock from their yard. After about one-fourth of the car had been unloaded, their lumber inspector reported that the lumber was running 55% below grade. Under the circumstances, they refused to accept it. I immediately started for his plant, and on the way turned over in my mind the best way to handle the situation. 
Ordinarily, under such circumstances, I should have quoted grading rules and tried, as a result of my own experience and knowledge as a lumber inspector, to convince the other inspector that the lumber was actually up to grade and that he was misinterpreting the rules in his inspection. However, I thought I would apply the principles learned in this training. When I arrived at the plant, I found the purchasing agent and the lumber inspector in a wicked humor, both set for an argument and a fight. We walked out to the car that was being unloaded, and I requested that they continue to unload so that I could see how things were going. I asked the inspector to go right ahead and lay out the rejects, as he had been doing, and to put the good pieces in another pile. After watching him for a while, it began to dawn on me that his inspection actually was much too strict and that he was misinterpreting the rules. This particular lumber was white pine, and I knew the inspector was thoroughly schooled in hardwoods, but not a competent, experienced inspector on white pine. A white pine happens to be my own strong suit, but did I offer any objection to the way he was grading the lumber? <laughs> None whatever. I kept on watching and gradually began to ask questions as to why certain pieces were not satisfactory. I didn't for one instant insinuate that the inspector was wrong. I emphasized that my only reason for asking was in order that we could give his firm exactly what they wanted in future shipment. By asking questions in a very friendly, cooperative spirit and insisting continually that they were right in laying out boards not satisfactory to their purpose, I got him warmed up and the strained relations between us began to thaw and melt away. An occasional carefully put remark on my part gave birth to the idea in his mind that possibly some of these rejected pieces were actually within the grade that they had bought and that their requirements demanded a more expensive grade. I was very careful, however, not to let him think I was making an issue of this point. Gradually, his whole attitude changed. He finally admitted to me that he was not experienced on white pine and began to ask me questions about each piece as it came out of the car. I'd explain why such and such a piece came within the grade specified, but kept on insisting that we did not want him to take it if it was unsuitable for their purpose. He finally got to the point where he felt guilty every time he put a piece in the rejected pile. And at last, he saw that the mistake was on their part for not having specified as good a grade as they needed. The ultimate outcome was that he went through the entire carload again after I left, accepted the whole lot, and we received a check in full. In that one instance alone, a little tact, and the determination to refrain from telling the other man he was wrong saved my company a substantial amount of cash, and it would be hard to place a money value on the goodwill that was saved. Martin Luther King was asked how, as a pacifist, he could be an admirer of Air Force General Daniel Chaffee James, then the nation's highest-ranking black officer. Dr. King replied, I judge people by their own principles, not by my own. In a similar way, General Robert E. Lee once spoke to the president of the Confederacy, Jefferson Davis, in the most glowing terms about a certain officer under his command. Another officer in attendance was astonished. General, he said, do you not know that the man of whom you speak so highly is one of your bitterest enemies who misses no opportunity to malign you? Yes, replied General Lee. But the president asked my opinion of him. He did not ask for his opinion of me. By the way, I'm not revealing anything new in this chapter. 
2,000 years ago, Jesus said, Agree with thine adversary quickly. And 2,200 years before Christ was born, King Octoy of Egypt gave his son some shrewd advice, advice that is sorely needed today. Be diplomatic, counseled the king. It will help you gain your point. In other words, don't argue with your customer or your spouse or your adversary. Don't tell them they are wrong. Don't get them stirred up. Use a little diplomacy. Principle two, show respect for the other person's opinions. Never say you're wrong. Chapter three, if you're wrong, admit it. Within a minute's walk of my house, there was a wild stretch of virgin timber where the blackberry thickets foamed white in the springtime, where the squirrels nested and reared their young, and the horse weeds grew as tall as a horse's head. This unspoiled woodland was called Forest Park, and it was a forest, probably not much different in appearance from what it was when Columbus discovered America. I frequently walked in this park with Rex, my little Boston bulldog. He was a friendly, harmless little hound, and since we rarely met anyone in the park, I took Rex along without a leash or muzzle. One day, we encountered a mounted policeman in the park, a policeman itching to show his authority. What do you mean by letting that dog run loose in the park without a muzzle and leash, he reprimanded me. Don't you know it's against the law? Well, yes, I know it is, I replied softly, but I didn't think he'd do any harm out there. You didn't think. You didn't think. The law doesn't give a tinker's damn about what you think. That dog might kill a squirrel or bite a child. Oh, I'm going to let you off this time, but if I catch this dog out here again without a muzzle and leash, you'll have to tell it to the judge. I meekly promised to obey, and I did obey for a few times. But Rex didn't like the muzzle, and neither did I, so we decided to take a chance. Everything was lovely for a while, and then we struck a snag. Rex and I raced over the brow of a hill one afternoon, and there, suddenly, to my dismay, I saw the majesty of the law astride a bay horse. Rex was out in front, heading straight for the officer. I was in for it. I knew it. So I didn't wait until the policeman started talking. I beat him to it. I said, Officer, you've caught me red-handed. I'm guilty. I have no alibis, no excuses. You warned me last week that if I brought the dog out here again without a muzzle, you'd find me. Well, now, the policeman responded in a soft tone. I know it's a temptation to let a little dog like that have a run out here when nobody's around. Sure, it's a temptation, I replied, but it is against the law. Well, a little dog like that isn't going to harm anybody, the policeman remonstrated. Well, no, but he may kill squirrels, I said. Well, now, I think you're taking this a bit too seriously, he told me. I'll tell you what you do. You just let him run over the hill there where I can't see him and we'll forget all about it. Well, that policeman, being human, wanted a feeling of importance. So when I began to condemn myself, the only way he could nourish his self-esteem was to take the magnanimous attitude of showing mercy. But suppose I'd tried to defend myself. Well, did you ever argue with a policeman? But instead of breaking lances with him, I admitted that he was absolutely right and I was absolutely wrong. I admitted it quickly, openly, and with enthusiasm. The affair terminated graciously in my taking his side and his taking my side. Lord Chesterfield himself could hardly have been more gracious than this mounted policeman who only a week previously had threatened to have the law on me. 
If we know we are going to be rebuked anyhow, isn't it far better to beat the other person to it and do it ourselves? Isn't it much easier to listen to self-criticism than to bear condemnation from alien lips? Say about yourself all the derogatory things you know the other person is thinking or wants to say or intends to say and say them before that person has a chance to say them. The chances are a hundred to one that a generous, forgiving attitude will be taken and your mistakes will be minimized, just as the mounted policeman did with me and Rex. Ferdinand E. Warren, a commercial artist, used this technique to win the goodwill of a petulant, scolding buyer of art. It is important in making drawings for advertising and publishing purposes to be precise and very exact, Mr. Warren said as he told the story. Some art editors demand that their commissions be executed immediately, and in these cases, some slight error is liable to occur. I knew one art director in particular who was always delighted to find fault with some little thing. I have often left his office in disgust, not because of the criticism, but because of his method of attack. Recently, I delivered a rush job to this editor, and he phoned me to call at his office immediately. He said something was wrong. When I arrived, I found just what I had anticipated and dreaded. He was hostile, gloating over his chance to criticize. He demanded with heat why I had done so-and-so. My opportunity had come to apply the self-criticism I'd been studying about, so I said, Mr. So-and-so, if what you say is true, I am at fault, and there is absolutely no excuse for my blunder. I have been doing drawings for you long enough to know better. I am ashamed of myself. Immediately, he started to defend me. Yes, you're right, but after all, this isn't a serious mistake. It's only, and I interrupted him, any mistake, I said, may be costly, and they're all irritating. He started to break in, but I wouldn't let him. I was having a grand time. For the first time in my life, I was criticizing myself, and I loved it. I should have been more careful, I continued. You give me a lot of work, and you deserve the best, so I'm going to do this drawing all over. No, no, he protested, I wouldn't think of putting you to all that trouble. He praised my work, assured me he wanted only a minor change, and that my slight error hadn't cost his firm any money, and after all, it was a mere detail not worth worrying about. My eagerness to criticize myself took all the fight out of him. He ended up by taking me to lunch, and before we parted, he gave me a check and another commission. There's a certain degree of satisfaction in having the courage to admit one's errors. It not only clears the air of guilt and defensiveness, but often helps solve the problem created by the error. Bruce Harvey of Albuquerque, New Mexico, had incorrectly authorized payment of full wages to an employee on sick leave. When he discovered his error, he brought it to the attention of the employee and explained that to correct the mistake, he would have to reduce his next paycheck by the entire amount of the overpayment. The employee pleaded that as that would cause him a serious financial problem, could the money be repaid over a period of time? In order to do this, Harvey explained, he would have to obtain his supervisor's approval. And this, I knew, reported Harvey, would result in a boss-type explosion. While trying to decide how to handle the situation better, I realized that the whole mess was my fault, and I would have to admit it to my boss. I walked into his office, told him that I had made a mistake, and then informed him of the complete facts. 
He replied in an explosive manner that it was the fault of their personnel department. I repeated that it was my fault. He exploded again about carelessness in the accounting department. Again, I explained it was my fault. He blamed two other people in the office, but each time I reiterated that it was my fault. Finally, he looked at me and said, Okay, it was your fault. Now straighten it out. The error was corrected, and nobody got into trouble. I felt great because I was able to handle a tense situation and had the courage not to seek alibis. My boss has had more respect for me ever since. Any fool can try to defend his or her mistakes, and most fools do. But it raises one above the herd and gives one a feeling of nobility and exultation to admit one's mistakes. For example, one of the most beautiful things that history records about Robert E. Lee is the way he blamed himself and only himself for the failure of Pickett's charge at Gettysburg. Pickett's charge was undoubtedly the most brilliant and picturesque attack that ever occurred in the Western world. General George E. Pickett himself was picturesque. He wore his hair so long that his auburn locks almost touched his shoulders, and like Napoleon in his Italian campaigns, he wrote ardent love letters almost daily while on the battlefield. His devoted troops cheered him that tragic July afternoon as he rode off jauntily toward the Union lines, his cap set at a rakish angle over his right ear. They cheered, and they followed him, man touching man, rank pressing rank, with banners flying and bayonets gleaming in the sun. It was a gallant sight, daring, magnificent. A murmur of admiration ran through the Union lines as they beheld it. Pickett's troops swept forward at an easy trot, through orchard and cornfield, across a meadow and over a ravine. All the time, the enemy's cannon was tearing ghastly holes in their ranks, but on they pressed, grim, irresistible. Suddenly, the Union infantry rose from behind the stone wall on Cemetery Ridge, where they had been hiding, and fired volley after volley into Pickett's onrushing troops. The crest of the hill was a sheet of flame, a slaughterhouse, a blazing volcano. In a few minutes, all of Pickett's brigade commanders except one were down, and four-fifths of his 5,000 men had fallen. General Louis A. Armistead, leading the troops in the final plunge, ran forward, vaulted over the stone wall, and waving his cap on top of his sword, shouted, Give them steel, boys! They did. They leaped over the wall, bayoneted their enemies, smashed skulls with clubbed muskets, and planted the battle flags of the South on Cemetery Ridge. The banner waved there only for a moment, but that moment, brief as it was, recorded the high-water mark of the Confederacy. Pickett's charge, brilliant, heroic, was nevertheless the beginning of the end. Lee had failed. He could not penetrate the North, and he knew it. The South was doomed. Lee was so saddened, so shocked, that he sent in his resignation and asked Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy, to appoint a younger, abler man. If Lee had wanted to blame the disastrous failure of Pickett's charge on someone else, he could have found a score of alibis. Some of his division commanders had failed him. The cavalry hadn't arrived in time to support the infantry attack. This had gone wrong, and that had gone awry. But Lee was far too noble to blame others. As Pickett's beaten and bloody troops struggled back to the Confederate lines, Robert E. Lee rode out to meet them all alone and greeted them with a self-condemnation that was little short of sublime. 
All this has been my fault, he confessed. I, and I alone, have lost this battle. Few generals in all history had had the courage and character to admit that. 